Good evening. I'm gonna, we're just going to plunge in here to make sure that people have time to listen to some exhilarating conversation. I'm Stefan Yost. I'm the Michael and Sonia Kerner Director of, and CEO of the Art Gallery of Ontario. I've been here, you know, coming on four weeks almost. So. Um, I've said this before, but I think the Outsiders show, when I saw it for the first time, of course I thought this is extraordinary art, but I also felt like the exhibition, how it was conceived and curated is, is really important. And the Casa Susana suite of photographs that um, kind of is towards about four-fifths the way through the show is one of those sets of photographs that just makes your head spin because there's a ton of questions there's a lot of intrigue, a lot of like, whoa, how do I think about this? And um, what I love about how it is included is it's, this is art, right? Let's just call it art, and then we can have great conversations from there. Um, I want to say that in order for an institution like this to acquire an archive like the Casa Susana, it's only possible with a great curatorial team who can spot something and understand its importance, and it's also um, only possible when there are people who are willing to support that acquisition. So I just point blank, want to thank Martha McLean. Um, Martha McCain just made this happen, so thank you very, very much. I have a bunch of thank yous. I want to thank the speakers, um, Elspeth Brown, Zachary Drucker, and Mickey Alicia Gilbert. Thank you for tonight. Um, Outsiders, uh, the exhibition was generously supported by Cindy and Sean Barnett. Uh, Maxine Gronofsky-Gluskin and Iris, I Ira Gluskin. Maxine is the chairwoman of the board of trustees here. She's fantastic, and she's very committed to moving this institution forward fast, which I love. The uh, W. Garfield Weston Foundation and the signature partner for our photo program and photo collections, AMIA. The Canada Council for the Arts, public funding for the arts, thank you. Um, and then Penny Rubinoff is her um, generous support with uh, the AGO Contact uh, International Photography Talks, which this is part of. The Contact, Film Festival, uh, Contact Photo Festival is going on right now. We are partnering on two exhibitions. One is the Outsider exhibition, and the other is an exhibition on Thomas Roof, which is super cerebral and beautiful simultaneously. Um, I should also mention that the Casa Susana photographs are part of a public art project and murals and posters in the St. Patrick um, station, um, subway station, which is just kind of talk about going public with these things. So um, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Bonnie Rubenstein, who is uh, the artistic director of Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stefan. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. We're celebrating Contact's 20th anniversary this year, and we're honored to expand our partnership with the Art Gallery of Ontario, which has been ongoing since the first festival in 1997. Contact's collaborative approach to programming has empowered us to mark this milestone year with 20 primary exhibitions at museums and not-for-profit galleries, throughout the GTA. The exhibitions here at the AGO are two outstanding examples, and they highlight the dramatic social, cultural, and political impact of photography. The Casa Susana collection provides vital opportunities to contribute to conversations about queer and trans history and visibility, 
We are very proud to co-present a selection of images at St. Patrick's Station on a very public platform. As one of CONTACT's 20 public installations throughout the city this month, it destabilizes the conventions of advertising and alters the patterns of everyday activity in public space. On behalf of everyone at the Scotiabank Contact Photography Festival, sincere thanks go to the many wonderful people here at the AGO that have worked with us this year, and to each of our supporters, especially to Penny Rubinoff this evening. Special thanks go to the numerous individuals and organizations that support the festival, both donors and sponsors, including, of course, our title sponsor, Scotiabank, several Canadian and international funding agencies, and each of our exhibition and education partners. Contact 2016 presents an extraordinary scope of lens-based work by acclaimed and emerging artisan photographers from Canada and around the world, and we are very grateful to each and every one of them for enabling us to show their work. With more than 200 exhibitions and happenings in this year's festival, there is much to explore throughout the city in the month of May. You'll find complete details on our website and our festival catalog, which you can pick up at the AGO's front desk or at any of our participating venues while they last. The Casa Susana collection also provided us with especially meaningful images to grace the cover of our catalog this year, which depicts like-minded individuals celebrating their desired identities. We all have cause to celebrate the power of photography as it enables us to see and better understand ourselves, each other, and the multifaceted world around us. And now to contextualize the Casa Susana collection, I'm pleased to introduce the AGO's Associate Curator of Photography, Sophie Hackett. Thank you, Bonnie and Stefan, for those great introductory remarks. And it uh, is really very much my pleasure to tell you a little bit about the collection that we will hear our uh, esteemed panel speak about at greater length just in a moment. So it was really about 12 years ago that Robert Swope was browsing through the 26th Street flea market in Manhattan, and he came across an unusual trove of photographs. Uh, so unusual and so intriguing were they to him that he acquired them and took them home. Uh, and with his partner, Michelle Hurst, they eventually published a selection of these photographs in a book in 2005. And I think that's really when the fun uh, gets started. Uh, it was really only then that more details about the place and its cross-dressing visitors started to come to light and continues to come to light. Here's what we know so far. Uh, from the mid-1950s until 1969, Susanna and her wife Marie operated a resort in upstate New York for cross-dressers. There were in fact two locations in the Catskills area, the first called Chevalier Deon that operated from 1955 until 1963, and the second, Casa Susanna, which was near Hunter, uh, the, the town of Hunter, uh, further in New York State from 1964 to 1969. They also hosted soirees in their New York apartment, uh, and in all, to all together, all of these three locations uh, provided a safe haven for visitors, some of whom were heterosexual men, and some others would later identify as trans women. Uh, it was a safe place for them to express their femininity. At the resort, the guests would spend weekends reveling in their freedom to dress en femme, something that they really couldn't do in their day-to-day -day lives. They would talk, perform songs and skits, share fashion and makeup tips, and also, crucially, photograph one another. 
The quiet banality of many of these scenes in the photographs, I think, belies the violence and ridicule that many of the subjects might have faced out in the world at large at that time. The snapshots were really chiefly made by the participants themselves, and they're typical uh, of snapshots. They're groups of friends together at parties, standing on the lawn on a summer afternoon, celebrating birthdays. They are candid, they're full of camaraderie. But they also feature individuals that are vamping for the camera, playing the roles of different female stereotypes, including the femme fatale, the matron, the proper lady. Uh, I think which highlights a keen awareness uh, that the individuals had of image, appearance, and gender roles in the culture at the time. I'd say indeed many of the clothing styles and poses were drawn from fashion and movie magazines. Uh, for instance, one snap shows a slender cross-dresser with a cigarette holding, uh, holding a cigarette in one hand and a copy of Vogue magazine in the other. I think we'll see that picture later. <clears throat> Some exude a 1950s decorum, uh, while others emulate movie star glamour. Catherine Cummings, who visited Casa Susanna in the 1960s, actually traveling from Toronto, where she was studying at the time, recalls that cross-dressers need for a photographic reassurance, a visual arbiter, a visual marker of their femininity. In contrast to most snapshots, however, I think these, these particular snapshots didn't serve only a private function. They certainly served that private function, but they did go beyond. They were shared among resort visitors, and several of the images feature cross-dressers uh, holding and looking at snapshots. Even that activity is reflected in the collection. Uh, many were mailed to Susanna and Marie by friends and visitors, as well as those who were really unable to make the trip to upstate New York. We know that at least one of the photographs came uh, from Argentina. Uh, and here it's, it begins to be possible to see uh, the network that took shape across the United States and beyond um, as individuals sought out this, this young community. I'd say the collection beautifully demonstrates how a group of like-minded individuals celebrated their time together and affirmed their desired identities with one another. And they're a rare pre-Stonewall example of photography used to explore gender identity. And the fact that these photographs have, uh, these photographs are notable for, for the very fact that they've survived and together. Uh, in my mind, they are tender fragments of queer lives lived. The 340 photographs that, that make up this collection are now part of the Art Gallery of Ontario's permanent collection, uh, as Bonnie uh, and both Stefan indicated. We acquired them the last year, uh, and that acquisition was really one of the key elements that sparked uh, the Outsiders exhibition project. This is something that would not have been possible, and I'm going to uh, repeat some of what um, Stefan said. It would not have been possible about the, the generous support of a certain individual without uh, Martha McCain, um, and uh, without her generosity and her belief that these photographs could mark the beginning of something really big, um, this, would not, uh, this project would actually not be here. So would you join me in, in um, thanking Martha wholeheartedly? Um, somewhere. So, uh, with really no further ado, I want to welcome to the stage our illustrious panel, Elspeth Brown, Zachary Drucker, and Mickey Alicia Gilbert. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about Casa Susanna. I am Zachary Drucker. I'm both a human and a person. Uh, I'm an artist, a filmmaker, and a producer. Zachary plays a role on Transparent as a consultant, so hopefully Zachary will talk a little bit about that later. My name is Elspeth Brown. I am a historian, 
I teach at the University of Toronto in U.S. history. I work on the history of visual culture, the history of gender and sexuality. I'm also very active with the Gay and Lesbian Archives uh, here in Toronto, where I'm on the board and I work as a volunteer. Hi. <coughs> I'm Mickey Alicia Gilbert. I'm professor of philosophy at York University and uh, I've been involved in trans activities for many years. I'm a lifelong cross-dresser, and unusually for a cross-dresser, I'm out in public about it. Uh, I've also been the uh, director uh, and uh, uh, involved deeply with Fantasia Fair, uh, which is sort of a subsequent event of uh, uh, like Casa Susana. There you go. Well, we have a kind of unscripted conversation that we'd like to have here together with the idea that afterwards you all can ask questions um, of any one of us or of the, of the topic in general. And we have some photographs here um, that we're going to look at together and talk about with the idea that some of the stories that uh, we have to say about the images will emerge as a result. Um, so you can see on the screen here one of the snapshots of uh, Casa Susana. And what we'd like to do now is just show a couple of images uh, featuring Andrea Suzanne, who is one of the uh, photographers, probably the main photographer for many of the images that are in the show. I think uh, Sophie estimated that about three quarters of the photographs were yes. made by yeah. Andrea. So I'll just fast forward a bit. I think. Should be next, I think. Ah, there we go. There we go. Um, that's, I don't know whether it's your right or left, but holding the bottle of booze is me. <laughs> that's, that's a very standard way to identify me. Um, next to me is my dearly beloved and late friend, uh, Andrea Susan. Uh, sometime around 1960, Andrea Susan was asked by a gentleman named David, who was a cross-dresser, um, if David bought Andrea, also known as Jack, a camera and set up a dark room, would Andrea go to Castle Susanna, which she was attending on her own, and uh, take pictures and provide copies to David and the other girls there? And Andrea agreed. And should I tell the whole story? Yeah, yeah sure, okay. Go for well, it. Sure subsequently, uh, um, so Andrea took all of these pictures, and she learned she learned how to do color darkroom work, which I know we're the digital generation now, but color darkroom work is brutally difficult and tricky. A degree off in anything can can ruin photos. So she took all these photos and gave them to David, and David uh, um, married, married a woman named Joan Bennett, who you may have heard of. And they were living in a Manhattan apartment, and Joan decided that she wanted more room for her dog in a garden. So they were moving to Scarsdale. And when they moved, Joan said, I don't want those stupid pictures to come with us. Get rid of them. So David put them all in a box, put them on the sidewalk, and someone took them. And they were found, as you heard, by other people uh, who realized that these were very, very valuable historical items. 
and that became the book. And this is Andrea, Susan, and I. For about eight years, we emceed the fashion show at Fantasia Fair, and we had a great time. And there's Andrea Susan. Uh, next to her, on her right, um, is Dallas Denny, who is a very well-known trans theorist and historian. And then another gal uh, from uh, uh, Fantasia Fair. And they're sitting in the bar in the afternoon having a rest. And I just wanted to say that uh, Dallas Denny, who's in this photograph in the middle, uh, was able to do a fabulous interview with uh, Andrea Susan just before he passed away about a year and a half no. ago. She's right? a it's actually done in the hospital. Yeah, and it's an amazing, amazing interview. It's available on uh, YouTube, and I really recommend uh, taking a look at it if you can because it provides some lovely additional context uh, for the images. Now, Andrea uh, was a wonderful storyteller. And she could tell a story, uh, and just and she does that. She tells the story of the photographs and everything. And when she tells a story, she can tell it again, and again, and again. But there you have, now it's recorded. Good. I'm wondering if, um, I know that so the images sometimes raise the question of privacy and ethics, because what does it mean to take these found photographs, if you will, and then published them in a, an album, and now here they are at the AGO, and they're in a subway platform, and there's a lot of um, legal and ethical questions around the circulation of these images, and I'm wondering if, uh, Zachary, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. Um, you know, I think it's so remarkable that this collection of photographs was found because trans folks are coming out of a history of hiding and of being concealed, regardless mm -hmm. of your community of origin. So cross-dressers, just to kind of break things down to basic terms, um, typically come from heterosexual backgrounds and oftentimes were married and had children, the subjects of Casa Susana, outside of the kind of play that they were enacting in this private community. Um, outside of their lives were, you know, living the lives of typical cisgender men. Um, in the 60s, it's so interesting to me because it was a time before there was language to describe these identities. And at this point, there's so many words that we have to describe trans identities and to kind of parse things out and to understand exactly, um, you know, where a person falls on the spectrum but it's moving so quickly, it's evolving so rapidly. And we've yet to really mine, I think, the spectrum between cisgender and trans, right? Like, you know, we talk a lot about the, the spectrum between male and female, and um, obviously, you know, heterosexual or queer. Um, all of this to say, the ethics, going back to that, are, um, you know, for me, okay, as, as a young person, I realized while looking at the exhibition today that I was a cross-dresser, but as a young child, and I, it had never occurred to me, I say this often in artist talks, that my first art project was dressing up in my mom's old prom dresses and dance costumes and having my folks take Polaroids of me, and I had this photo album. So I don't know if uh. I'm like, 
a Casa Susana right. attendee um, reincarnated, or <laughs> I have that thought. Um, but the you know photography as a site to construct oneself, I think, is such a, a rich kind of um, site of, of invention. The history, like the lost history of trans folks, um, I mean, power dynamics are so imbued in photography, no matter what. I mean, and you look at the earliest uh, functions of photography, it was, you know, colonialism, it was, um, you know, indigenous cultures kind of being subjected to the camera. Um, it was African-American slaves. Um, and the power dynamics are so palpable when you look at those images. When, when you can't be who you want to be whenever you want to be it, then those images are a reassurance. They're a recognition that yes, I, I can do that. I am that person as well as the one I happen to be now. And I, I think that's one of the powers of photography for those, for those situations. And my, my last little piece, I think the ethic, like when a history is so concealed and so hard to find, I think the fact that the photographs exist and you can locate yourself in it and be like, okay, I have, there is a precedent mm -hmm. for this trajectory that I'm on and it's not just a youth phenomenon, it's not just happening in this moment. So I understand the ethical kind of like quandary, but um, I don't care. <laughs> I guess, you know, like, I am so happy that the images exist and that we yeah. can see yeah. them because it is, you know, I think it's more important to support a younger generation that mm -hmm. doesn't know that they have this history than it is mm. to support people who are probably no longer living. And mm -hmm. Well, I also noticed in the actual exhibit that the only times last names were used were when someone was public or had been on record. So it wasn't as if last names were being used uh, uh, without permission. So it was only when someone wrote a book or had been arrested or something like that, uh, uh, when they had a notoriety, that the last name was used. And there's also, I think, a difference between whether or not the en femme name is being used versus the name mm -hmm. of the accountant or pharmacologist or some of the um, men who are living heterosexual lives, in this case in Manhattan. It's a bit of a different kind of question. So ethically, I think it's one thing to consider publishing the name, identifying the names of the trans women or the cross-dressing women en femme as we see in the exhibition where uh, certain uh, people are identified by their female names. That's one thing. It's another thing altogether, I think, to think about what it looks like to use the male name, especially if someone hasn't passed away. If somebody has passed away, then that's a different question altogether, it seems well, to me. Well, there's still their family yeah, to yeah. consider if their family did not know that they were cross-dressers, didn't know that they went to places like Casa Susana when they said they were on a business trip, mm -hmm. uh, then that could be hurtful as well. Absolutely. I mean, this is, I think, a question that many archives that are dealing with digitizing mm -hmm. images, I know we're dealing with this question at CLGA all the time. Every time we digitize any image and put it on the web, that's a very different yes. kind of 
question than mm -hmm. if you are creating a finding aid and having somebody actually come to Toronto and take a look at the image. It's sure. very different because once it's on the web, it's available. So there's a distinction to be made between uh, the ethical question versus mm -hmm. the legal question, and that's going to be different right. between Canada and the U.S. It's going to be different in every state. It's, it's also still the case that there are people who are closeted. Mm -hmm. At the fair, Fantasia Fair, uh, you have to uh, register the degree to which you're willing to have your photo taken. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want your photo taken at all, you have a special sign on your, on your badge Mm -hmm. with your name on it that says no photos. Mm -hmm. and, and no one's even supposed to ask for your photo. Mm -hmm. and so it's still, it's still the case that, you know, now most people say, oh, I don't care, yeah, which is yeah. different, right? Yeah. But some still do. But I, I think the, the question of the kinds of work that photographs do, I think as you were talking about that before, Zachary, is really an important point because they, do the work of not only reflecting oneself back to oneself, but I think they also do the work of actually creating and constructing community and identity at the same time. They do that kind of instrumental work that we're usually, at least in photo history and theory circles, usually thinking of in a kind of dystopic way, like we think of the role of photography in relationship to the state, or we think of the role of photography's history within scientific racism or colonialism. But I think there's also a kind of um, performative, utopic aspect to photography, particularly vernacular uh, queer family photography, which I think this is, to reflect back to yourself and to others the, the self that you want to be, which I think is part of the reason why these photographs were in such tremendous circulation between members of the cross-dressing community internationally through Transvestia, the magazine that Virginia Prince founded, but also uh, as we see in the, in the Christmas card, uh, cards that are part of the exhibition where clearly these are photographs that are being sent to lots of people within within the network and these are photographs that say this is who I am, this is who I want myself to be, this is who I want you to remember me being on this day and mm -hmm. that, that's a kind of um, performative work that kind of creates a self for the other and for the self that I think photography can, uh, can it, play it, that role. it proves existence. Yeah, yeah. Right? It proves uh, existence, both physical and moral. There's an old joke of how many cross-dressers does it take to change a light bulb? The answer is 12. One to change the light bulb and 11 to take pictures of her doing it. <laughs> Before we get too off the ethics conversation, I mean, I also think about the Marilyn Monroe photographs that were taken by Bert Stern late in her life that are X'd out. And, you know, of course, they were all published in this kind of gorgeous, pristine book. So, you know, there's a particular quandary around honoring the wishes of the deceased. Mm. And, you know, I had that thought, you know, looking at the exhibition with various subjects, I thought, you know, we all have the privilege of being alive. Um, you know, if we are art practitioners, we have the privilege of advocating for the work that we've made and speaking to our intentions, but at some point that's lost as subjects 
you know, only if we're alive to tell the story, only if we're close enough to the work, um, can we kind of protect the, you know, our, our agency in, in being photographed. But, you know, my big question to you, Mickey, earlier was, you know, do you know of anybody who was outed by the Casa Susana photographs? And I don't think anybody verified I, that. I, I haven't heard of anyone who was outed by it. Uh, and, and I suspect that I would have uh, through the grapevine. So, uh, no, I think, first of all, while we're very aware here of the photographs, the vast majority of people have not seen them, mm -hmm. right? So, first of all, you have to see it, and someone has to say, oh my God, that's me, mm -hmm. or, oh gosh, that's grandpa, <laughs> right? Uh, and I always knew <laughs> you know, Grandpa was something. There was something going on there. Um, so, and no. what a gift, yeah. too. I mean, what a gift to the people that you know are left behind to kind of. I mean, right. that happens regardless of your gender identity. You know, you mm -hmm. die, and your family learns all kinds of things about you. I received an email. <laughs> yeah, no, it's That's true. Interesting that you call that a gift, Zachary. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I know crossdressers who have instructions for friends. If should they die suddenly, to get rid of uh, 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 the, the suitcase under the bed or what have you, you know. Um, I also received an email just a short while ago um, when the Casa Susana piece appeared in the Star uh, from a woman who says she uh, now believes that her grandfather was a crossdresser and wanted to talk to me about it and find out more because she feels that she's missing an important part of him that she wants to know about. So there's, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, some people might be embarrassed. Others might say, oh wow, I didn't know he was that cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's so many famous American figures. J. Edgar Hoover allegedly was a cross-dresser, as was Roy Cohn. Right. Um, you know, I've heard about cross-dressing, a, a cross-dressing safe house in D.C. that they were, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. served a similar function as Costa yep. Susana. Mm. No, there are lots of cross-dressers out there. There are a whole bunch in the audience here right now. Yeah, I was just going to say. Raise your hands. <laughs> Time I, to come out. I think I'm cross-dressing right now, but that's a whole other story. Right. Okay. <laughs> I made, I made her wear a dress. Yes, in fact, Zachary was also supposed to wear a dress. I know, and Zachary let down. down the team. That's all I could say. I'm like, here I am sitting in this dress. All right, moving I'm right along. Sorry. <laughs> I brought a dress. I decided not yeah, to wear yeah, it. Yeah, 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 right. Um, but one of the things about the photographs that I really loved, um, there are lots of things that I really love about the photographs and the exhibition, but. Um, has to do with these uh, candid photographs, these like crazy, zany kind of snapshots. We have here Susanna rolling off the couch, and you may have seen a series of them. There are a couple of them where people are just basically hanging out and having fun and hanging and enjoying themselves and being silly. And it's a very different kind of image than what one is likely to see in uh, Transvestia, which was the cross-dressing magazine that for which uh, Susanna was the fashion editor for 10 years between 1960 and 1970. And those photographs are much more composed and after 1962 they're much more proper and respectable and we're gonna see a little bit of those um, 
later on. But the snapshots, I think, the candid snapshots that we see here go, go do that kind of work, I think, of kind of making a, making a sense of belonging and community uh, in a different sort of way than the more formal am, uh, images. And here are some of the photographs well, of looking right. at photographs. These are, these are gals having fun. You know, and they're, the, the thing about Casa Susana and other places like it, and I include Fantasia Fair and some of the other events, like you were at Southern Comfort, <clears throat> is you, you get to hang, right? You know, you do something by yourself and uh, you take a self photo, right? The drapes are closed so the neighbors can't peer in, and, and that's it. But when you go someplace for a weekend or a day or a week, then you get to explore that part of yourself that you normally keep hidden. And these photos show that. Mm -hmm. They show that playfulness, that exploration, uh, that, that willingness to, to do other things, wear a swimsuit. Mm -hmm. All right? uh, at the fair, we encourage people, wear jeans and a top, you know, dress like all the other lesbians around here. <laughs> They say, they say they know we're in town because it's the only time you hear the clack of high heels on the sidewalk. <laughs> I'm wondering though, Vicky, uh, can you talk a little bit about like what happens when these photographs are found by people who shouldn't find them? Are you, in your experience, are you familiar with cases where that's happened? Oh yes, oh yes, I, I've certainly, uh, I mean, see things are changing so much. When, when I came out, and I've spoken to other people who've come out, and you know, basically what I said, the amazing thing is that nobody gives a dime. You know, nobody cares, right? Uh, I mean, except for your immediate family, what's it got to do with them? Mm -hmm. You know, you're not, you're, it's not like you're, you're going to their house for a dinner party dressed. I mean, it's just something you do. And, uh, uh, but when people find out, they can be shocked. Mm -hmm. A lot depends on where you are. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, I've spoken with people uh, who live in a community which is very, very righteous, very, very conservative, and they're, for example, afraid what would happen to their kids mm -hmm. if the neighbors knew that they were weird. Mm -hmm. right? So if these pictures come out, um, they, they, there's a cost. And they worry more about their family than they do about themselves. Mm -hmm. And certainly if you're in North Carolina, you've got to worry about yourself as well. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Right? I mean, where, where am I supposed to go to the washroom mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. if I was in North Carolina right now? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, give me a break. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really uh, awful and depressing. Yeah, and at my age, you use the washroom a lot. Mm. <laughs> Where you can wear a diaper like that crazy woman who drove across the country and then I'm not like, wearing no diaper. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Do you remember that story anyway? I'm not that old. No, no. <laughs> I didn't mean it yes, that Yes, I do. I remember yeah, the story. Right. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Rescuing me there, Mickey. I really appreciate it. I have a few like unrelated but interconnected thoughts that I'm yes. just gonna try to weave in. And it's based on an article that I read that you wrote, Mickey, called The Feminist Crossdresser. And I think that viewing these photographs from a feminist lens and understanding myself as a trans woman, having transitioned a decade ago, um, the, the sort of um, loss of male privilege that mm -hmm. trans women experience. Mm -hmm. And 
for me, it was kind of a gender fluid adolescent, so I didn't quite understand the ways in which you know, male privilege was benefiting me. And I think for any folks who are trans, there is this feeling of pain that's like so deep that oftentimes it's hard to you know, recognize the ways in which you're benefiting from your gender presentation. But there was something about your, your article about how cross-dressers as bi-gendered people, as people who you know, inhabit both a masculine persona and a feminine persona can understand the plight of women, um, can understand gender equality and not just um, celebrate it, you know, without recognizing the ways in which it's oppressive. You, you realize that the things that you have, excuse me, <clears throat> the things that you've heard about that, you know, women talk about, sometimes complain about, and so on, you experience and we say, oh, like how, this is true. You know, I've spoken to, to cisgendered men when I'm dressed, and I knew I was passing when they ignored me. <laughs> so so you, you experience this. And, and as a male with a certain reputation and stature, I'm not used to that. I'm used to people paying attention to me. But, but, but as a woman in, in a room, I, it may not happen. And I'll understand why. So when I come back, and in the feminist cross-dresser, what I'm trying to say is pay attention to those things. Use your woman self and your woman experiences to learn about the reality of the other half, not just eye heels and stockings. What do you think, Elspeth? Well, I'm thinking about transitioning the other way, um, which is to say people who were born female and transitioned to male, who play this fantastic role as like stealth feminists, who kind of blow open the minds of uh, all male communities, if you will, where they say the kind of crazy radical feminist thing in the middle of a meeting that no one would expect that trans, well, that man to say. Um, so there's a way in which having the benefit of uh, a different embodied history that's gendered can do a lot of really fabulous, um, important uh, political work. But there's also, I think, the issue, too, of, of race and the privilege of whiteness, too, that I think is relevant for these photographs as well, because we see here Lily, who is, I'm pretty sure, the only woman of color who is represented in the photographs um, at all. And this particular group of cross-dressers, if I understand, was pretty much a, um, very much a kind of middle-class, professional, white, heterosexual, um, anxious about transsexual group of people. It was a group of people that, um, just to go back to the point that you were mentioning before, Zachary, that at a time historically when uh, cross-dressers, known at the time as, as we know as transvestites, were working very hard to distinguish what it meant to cross-dress from being a homosexual or from being a transsexual. So there was a lot of effort, particularly after 1962, in this circle and in transvestia circle, to kind of police the boundaries of middle-class respectability, which is also a kind of racialized respectability, racialized as white, which is part of the reason why um, we have some poses 
like the ones that you see here, which is basically um, just the most amazing versions of respectable, respectable middle-class white femininity. It's like mind-blowing, like with the, the, the poses of the legs and just so um, is really central to how Transvestia was producing a certain version yes, of cross-dressing that to distinguish it from the, uh, let's just say the erotic cross-dresser, okay. which is how... You, you weren't supposed to be slutty. Yeah. All right? You were supposed to be, as you say, respectable. Mm -hmm. and, and that meant that the photos that you took and the photos that you sent around did not show you in, you know, skimpy lingerie and, and things like that. That was for the weird cross-dressers. Um, one of the largest cross-dresser groups in the United States in those days was called Tri-S, Society for the Second Self. And they were fanatic about, you, if you were transsexual, you could not join. If you were homosexual, you could not join. And they insisted that there was absolutely nothing erotic about cross-dressing, which is, by the way, insane. <laughs> I mean, sorry. <laughs> sorry, but that's insane. Uh, and, but they, they tried to keep up this myth, you know, uh, and uh, now they've changed a lot. So, so the vast majority of chapters are much more open. So it still exists. But, oh, they were, they were fierce in their approach that it's simply your second self and you're experiencing it and everything is fine and perfectly normal. I mean, I think that it is a lot to give up, which is what both of you are speaking to. And I think it's, it's so interesting to me that, that that position of privilege was the thing that enabled the essentially the first wave of trans activism that you know, they felt comfortable enough to advocate for themselves, you know, because really, you know, it was, outside, it was some, something that was so compartmentalized, which is a really male thing to do. Um, if you look at, you know, the other end of the spectrum, and certainly uh, cross-dressers at the time really did see themselves as something separate than the queer community. Um, the way that trans people were treated in the, in the LGBT um, underground, because at that point it was illegal behavior. I mean, any cross-dressing was, right? Masquerade laws were intact, I think all over, pretty much. Oh, pretty I don't know about over. Canada, but... Um, and you had, you know, tr trans folks who were creatures of the night in, in urban areas who were the farthest on the margins in, in the queer communities, um, who were also, you know, the ones that started the Stonewall Rebellion, right. who started the Cooper, Cooper's Donuts riots in Los Angeles and the Compton Cafeteria riots in San right. Francisco. Compton Cafeteria, yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, it's funny to me, because I know a little bit more about those communities like Queens, pre-Stonewall, through my relationships with um, Flawless Sabrina in New York and uh, the late Hollywood Lawn, who were both out as 
queens, trans, you know, no words for it again, um, in the night, as early as the late 50s and through the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and that was really sub rosa. I mean, that was really oh, yeah, outlaw. Definitely. Well, as you said, it was illegal. If you were not wearing at least three articles of clothing of your proper gender, then you could be arrested. And if you were arrested and taken in by the police, it wasn't fun. So, uh, yes, and, and uh, uh, the riots that took place, Stonewall and Compton, for example, those are the ones I'm most familiar with. You hear that, Susan? And uh, uh, were, were very important events and, and made a, a huge difference in many lives. But it's just, I mean, it's funny when you really revisit that space of what that looked like from an overhead view. And if you were thinking like, you know, white, middle class, heterosexual married men with kids, and the alternative is, you know, That's you're right. a sex worker in Greenwich Village who's, you know, I mean, the trans women, trans women have always been victims of violence. I mean, I think that we're starting to yes. recognize and gender properly victims of violence at this point. Um, but that's something that always happened and it was just never reported and never talked about. No, of course not. It was, I've, as you say, sub rosa. And I think that's one of the reasons why there's such tremendous pressure on this particular community of cross-dressers to produce a kind of um, normative version of femininity because what they're working against is either the medical discourse that wants to see cross-dressers as only fetishists, basically, in relationship to clothing, or as sex workers who are going to be in the tabloids, right? That's the other kind of pole in which um, trans women have been traditionally seen, at least in this period, historically, which is one of the reasons why I love photographs uh, like this that are in Casa Susana, right? So to have, to have these women like basically just showing some leg, it's just freaking fantastic in relationship to all of the pressure on them historically and also in relationship to transvestia and this particular community of cross-dressers to not do this. But as you were saying before, in relationship to Southern Comfort, it's like a moment of just relaxing and... Uh, you, you, you see, the other thing is you're, you're breaking the rules and the mold of being a man. You can, you can, you can frolic, you can play, uh, you can be sexy, you can be coy. Right? And those are all things that are, are forbidden to straight men. And, and to, to get into something like that, which, you know, I mean, flirting can be fun. And, and when you, if you play with it, you first of all, you learn a lot about yourselves and other people, and also you enjoy it. Um, and, and begin to understand more. I think that dismantling the structures of mm -hmm. sexism benefit every human on planet Earth. Yes, yeah. The, one of the things that strikes me in the pictures um, and the whole idea of Casa Susana is the privacy. Um, the idea that, you know, as I, th I think you've said, Elspeth, that these were 
a picture is intended to be in a certain circle. Uh, and uh, they, the, you, you went someplace, and you went there in order to do something that you were not allowed to do elsewhere. Mm -hmm. It was forbidden. Mm -hmm. So when you went there and you did that, you had this license suddenly mm -hmm. uh, to be yourself or be that part of yourself. No, uh, uh, not every cross-dresser wants to be a transsexual. Uh, uh, some of us, myself, for example, uh, have been cross I've been a cross-dresser all my life and, and have never been drawn toward being full-time. Uh, were I to wake up and find myself a woman, I'd be thrilled, but, you know, not to go through that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I count myself fortunate. Whereas if I remember um, Susanna, as of Casa Susanna, did start living full-time mm -hmm. as a woman, if I remember, around 1970. And, but also, like Virginia Prince, had no interest in having uh, surgery and transitioning and wanted to create a space for someone who lived full-time as a woman, mm -hmm. but who was not transsexual. And, and some people have argued that it was Virginia Prince who, you know, published Transvestia, who's part of this circle, who uh, brought the term transgender mm -hmm. to the community as a kind of umbrella term that brings together all That's of right. these histories and identities. That's right. And at the time, I mean, as I understood Harry Benjamin's sort of rubric for obtaining a medical intervention if you were trans included, if you were heterosexual, you'd kind of were disqualified. That's right. From having a gender confirmation That's surgery. That's right. So here, here at the Clark, um, if you said you were, uh, you wanted to be a woman and you were attracted to women, you were thrown out. Which is, yeah. I mean, there's some deep-rooted homophobia in there. Exactly. Certainly no, we don't totally want to create is. lesbian women. And it then totally as a, from a historical perspective, then that troubles history in profound ways because, of course, what ends up happening? You have narrative after narrative after narrative of trans people saying, I'm a person trapped in the wrong body and I'm straight. Because that's the narrative that you had to produce that's in right. order to be able to access. That's right. And you also had to say that you never, ever masturbated when you were dressed. Mm -hmm. Right? There was nothing erotic about it. You're simply a woman. And, and these are the clothes that, that, that you're supposed to wear, and that's the only reason you wear them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, uh, um, and therefore, you should transition. Mm -hmm. But even then, if they didn't think you'd pass, they wouldn't accept you. Um, in one of my volunteer activities, I've been, uh, I just finished actually describing the very rich collection for Rupert Raj, who's a mm -hmm. trans activist who's here in Toronto. He's just retired from Sherbourne, and he's transitioned from uh, female to male in the early 1970s and was a really, really critically important activist internationally, but who's based here yes, in he Canada. Is. I'm sure you know Rupert. Um, and he's one of the very rich things about that collection because he published magazines in the 1980s is all of the people who wrote him from all over the world um, trying to get information about accessing surgery and hormones and part of that part of that narrative it's just heartbreaking to read is how many people were turned away for uh, surgery or hormones because they didn't fit 
this very tiny, like 5% of people who didn't fit the narrative of what it is that the medical professionals were looking for in order to have gender-affirming uh, surgery. Even before the internet, you could get your hands on a booklet that would tell you how to answer each and every question that the doctor would ask you. And, and the doctors had a problem because they knew this. They knew that you know we were all lying, mm -hmm. but but we were saying the right answers, so they couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was a script. Mm -hmm. yep. Well, the the other point that I wanted to make about these photographs that I think is quite interesting historically, anyway, is how most of them are happening. Most of them were taken in the late fifties, but mostly the nineteen sixties, like before let's just say 1968, 1969, where questions of um, normative femininity, let's just say, kind of began to be uh, broken apart. And so you have this lovely, lovely contradiction between, um, let's just say, the Miss America pageant protest in Atlantic City in 1968, where radical feminists from New York were burning, well, they tried to burn, they weren't able to actually burn it, but putting, <laughs> quote unquote, instruments of torture, girdles, wigs, high heels into the freedom trash can on the boardwalk of Atlantic City. And if I remember correctly, also crowning a live sheep, Miss America. Oh, they also broke into the convention and sprayed Tony hairspray around, because the Tony hairspray was one of the, um, uh, sponsors and they were arrested for that. Um, anyway, so this is all happening in 1968, uh, just at the very end of these photographs where uh, there's a kind of one group sees wigs and high heels and girdles as instruments of torture, another group sees these instruments of torture as instruments of, of self-making, of becoming and I think it took us a long time, you know, as feminists, before we began to kind of reevaluate the complexity of identity and relationship to dress and makeup and to recognize that uh, a bullet bra does not a reactionary make, let's just say. Um, that it's all, the dress is a lot more complicated. Like we have here Lily wearing, frankly, a profoundly Orientalist uh, outfit here. Um, I'm really reluctant to do a kind of, you know, typical reading of that kind of image in relationship to Orientalism, even though that's how we're trained. I think things are much more complicated in terms of how people dress and what the meanings of that dress are in relationship to particular communities in terms of who's looking at the image and what they mean. I'm wondering, um, Zachary, because I know you're involved with Transparent. Um, can you talk any about the clothing choices that are part of that show? I have no idea whether or not you're part of that at all. I'm just curious. Yeah, I know. I was a big part of it. Um, well, so Transparent's a TV show that uh, I'm a consultant and a producer on. Obviously, you know, the show is based on the creator's parent who for many years was a secret cross-dresser and then came out as trans in her 70s. And um, so that really is kind of the foundation for this character. But since it was such a secret self, um, you know, in season one, 
the writers were all really interested in understanding what would have taken this character so long to come out as trans and to, you know, present their authentic self to the family. And um, I spent a lot of time talking to both, you know, cross-dressers who had transitioned and who hadn't transitioned, um, as well as partners, wives of, of cross-dressers, or admirers, even. And I also spent a ton of time at the One Archive in Los Angeles, which is at USC, and it's the largest LGBT archive in the States. <laughs> um, they have every transvestia magazine. So I just, you know, got in there and read everything. I read, you know, the TS TV tapestry, um, which I know you also wrote for, Mickey. Um, we found booklets for the Fantasia Fair from the 80s. Um, Mariette Pathy Allen, who, you know, I guess we haven't mentioned her on stage yet, but um, Mariette is a photographer who's been photographing the gender community. Um, as early as the 70s, she was photographing cross-dressers and um, then kind of expanded to photographing the, the many factions of the trans community. Um, so we looked at her book, Transformations, which is incredible. Um, so all of those, yeah, for anything that was printed, obviously, it's, you know, uh, the only record of these communities um, and the first-hand research and kind of combining all of that to create a fictional space called Camp Camellia, which is where we landed. The and, situation, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, so like it's, you know, more of the protagonist of the show is like following this path, you know, and... Uh, I think I actually, it was in reading some of the letters in Transvestia, and I know that there was oftentimes cisgender women who were allies who would, as a service, as a paid service, much like a dominatrix, would pay, you know, you would pay her to teach you how to be a woman and how to cross-dress. So I saw a lot of those services advertised. Um, I don't know, I found this book that was like, the guide for the cross-dresser's wife. And, or it was like, a, do you know that one? No. Um, I'm sure, what was the title? I don't remember. <laughs> I'm uh -huh. sorry. Oh, there, um, there, there have been a couple of books by a couple whose name escapes me, mm. uh, uh, like How to Be a Woman While a Man, mm. and su such like, that give you very concrete tips um, on what to do about body hair, because you know it's it's the body hair is the bane of the crossdresser's existence. Because you often can't shave, because you're going to work, you're going to the gym. It's summer, you're wearing shorts, but at the same time you want to look pretty. So what do you do? Well, there are tricks that you can do. But one of the things I wanted to say about Mara uh, is that it's it's a surprisingly not unusual path um, because many cross-dressers um, suppress 
their transsexuality uh, because of their families. And it's like, like the old days when, when someone would be gay but not come out uh, because of the family, because they were married to somebody and they had children and so on and so forth. So what happens is at some point in life uh, when your children are independent and uh, uh, they don't need you anymore as a father the way they used to, that suddenly you say, you know what? It's my turn. I'm going to be me now instead of being dad or Mr. Smith, you know, I'm going to be Lois. And uh, that's a, a well-documented path. And one of the things that happens is in some of the literature, there's a distinction made between uh, what I call anyway, early onset transsexuals like yourself uh, and late onset, you know, like if I suddenly announced, guess what, uh -huh. you know, um, and there is this distinction. And part of the rationale is that you, you know, the earlier you transition, the, the more you grow accustomed and acculturated. Um, whereas the later, the more difficult it can be. But a lot of that lateness comes from exactly the obligation of the male to be the provider, to be the man, to be the family guy, uh, that, that eventually explodes. So it's not that unusual. Right, but I think as the cultural environment shifts and it's happening so rapidly, I mean, Generation Z, which is 12 to 20-year-olds, 48% of Generation Zers know a they, know a gender non-conforming person who uses the singular yeah. they pronoun, yeah. which is astounding. Yeah. No, it's I like, know. I oh know. my God. You know, I know. To think about those really entrenched roles of masculinity right. and what they look like in mm -hmm. the world of, you know, of Casas is on of 1950s and 1960s, it's going to be so obsolete and insane. Oh, I in the 80s, if you said to a group, how many of you know a gay person, you'd get a smattering of hands. Right? Now, if you say, how many of you know a trans person, you get a lot of hands. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's, it's some, it's an interesting progression. Well, with that note, um, I think it might be time to open the floor up uh, for questions. So hopefully some folks might have some questions that they could pose and we'll go from there. We want to hear from you. Yes, there are, there are microphones, I think, on either side. In the front. In the front. Hi, I have a question regarding an exhibition that was at the Art Gallery of York University last summer. And it was a person performing, it was a photographic exhibition, and a person performing um, very stereotypically uh, female roles. And as a heterosexual woman, it made me angry because I felt that this person was um, perpetrating stereotypes. And the person at the, at, who was sitting at the gallery told me I probably just didn't understand the context, which wasn't true. And I wondered if any of you had seen it and what, oh, that's too bad. Okay. No, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with it. Sorry, uh, I, have, I didn't see it either. 
No, you wouldn't. <laughs> I have, definitely no. have to, yeah. But I wonder, is your question actually about the way that these subjects are performing femininity? Is that the trigger for you, or the well, association? Well, I felt that it was a very regressive image of femininity, and, you know, if any of you had seen it, I was interested mm -hmm. to hear your reaction. But. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't see it. Are we expecting another uh, I can't hear. Expecting a few more seasons uh, of Caitlin? Oh, I, believe, I don't know. Uh, it hasn't been, they haven't, yeah, it hasn't been announced. Yeah. Right, so, so the third is still in question. Yeah, so your question, I'm uh, on a TV show called I Am Kate. I haven't mentioned that yet, but it's Caitlyn Jenner's docuseries on the E! Network. There's been two seasons of it. I don't know about the third season yet. But it's, you'll know as soon as I do. <laughs> Thank you. I actually had another thought while well, well, we're having an idle moment. Um, and it was about the creating Camp Camellia and creating this kind of fictional environment that's sort of an amalgamation of all these things, of Casa Susana, of Fantasia yep. Fair, of Southern Comfort, of, you know, I found that like, all these things were happening on the East Coast, essentially, and that there was like no West Coast equivalent. There, there was. There was. There was until recently. Uh, there was uh, California Dreamin', uh, which closed uh, just several years ago. There is one in Washington State called Esprit. Uh, I don't know if the Colorado Gold Rush uh, uh, is still on or not. Uh, and then in Chicago, until a few years ago, there was the Chicago Be All. So there were around there, but, but the, they, they seem to be folding, and they're folding from the west going east, so your point is well right. taken. But the thing, you know, the reason really why we created that whole container was to um, sort of um, create a beat for Mora where she understands that she is not comfortable mm -hmm. in her male identity outside of being there. Mm -hmm. And I think that that kind of distinction is potentially, you know, as our cultural environment changes, going to be less and less of a hang-up. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in a sense, you know, we, we want to be like dentists. We want to disappear. We want everybody to have perfect teeth and not need us. So if you can be a cross-dresser or a transsexual without anybody remarking on it, uh, then, yeah, terrific. We'll fold our tents and go away. Oh, uh, I see yes. a question in the There's back. There's a question, please. Um, so I think this feeds into the first question that was asked um, about the exhibit at York University. But I'm curious as to how um, you feel that embracing traditional notions of femininity can intersect with perceptions of male privilege. Well, it, it's a question for me. It's, uh, it's not so much traditional notions of femininity, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a feminist, and uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing a dress tonight, uh, but when I'm at Fantasia Fair, I'm usually in jeans and a sweatshirt. 
Uh, I also uh, don't like makeup. I wear makeup because I have a beard I have to cover. But if I were a, uh, a genuine woman, I would be an old hippie woman, just like I'm an old hippie guy. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I, I would wear makeup for weddings and bar mitzvahs and that's about it. Uh, and, I'd have, and I'd have trouble and complain about putting it on. So I do minimal things like that. So if by traditional models of femininity you mean wearing the traditional clothes and using makeup and so on, uh, um, I don't a lot. Uh, when I go to campus, I'm, I'm as likely as not to be wearing, in fact, I, the last whole bunch of times, uh, I've been wearing pants. Uh, and the other thing is, but the other part of your question, which is very, very important, is one of the things I encourage when I write uh, for other cross-dressers is to become aware of male privilege when you're on femme, right? To pay attention to how it feels. You know, if I'm out, if I'm coming home from something at night uh, and I'm dressed and I hear footsteps behind me, I don't react the way I do when I'm a guy. When I'm a guy, I just keep walking. I don't care. When I'm on femme, I pay more attention to where the steps are. Are they getting louder? Are they getting closer? I, I do what women do, which is, you know, turn on the high level of street smarts. So it's that kind of thing that uh, I encourage cross-dressers to pay attention to so that you have that awareness that there really is male privilege and, and, and that it does mean something and it does help you in life. I hope that answers. The other thing I just wanted to add to that too is that, at least from what I'm familiar with, it seems as if people's... Uh, understandings and representation of their gender within the feminine spectrum <clears throat> or the male spectrum, if they're transitioning the other way, that that's never a stable thing, that that changes over time, just Very as it does so. for yeah. all of us, right? Yeah. We're not producing the same version of gender, whether that's femininity or masculinity, the same way throughout our entire lives. Like, for example, I'm wearing a skirt right now, a dress, I mean, whatever this thing is. <laughs> I never would have done this, like, you know, 20 or 30 I, I made years her. ago. <laughs> I said, come exactly. on, the cross-dresser can't yes, be the only yeah. one in a dress. Yes, <laughs> true. So, in other words, like, we, I think we produce our genders in relationship to other things outside our body. Like, whether it's um, uh, a partner, whether it's a family, whether it's a group of uh, feminists at a particular time and place that understand dress to have certain kinds of meanings, whether it's uh, transitioning people who are just having that moment of excitement and thrill about what it means to dress in the other gender mm -hmm. and to be persuasive in that gender, and I've, sometimes that means the production of a kind of more normative version That's of that very gender. True which changes over time as one kind of fits into one's mm -hmm. body and right. one's sense of the, self? The, the default for identifying a person is male. You, you insult someone less by assuming they're male by then assuming they're female. So a cross-dresser or a trans person who is especially beginning and wanting to be identified as a woman needs to create the signal. 
needs to wear a skirt more often than a cisgendered woman would because men don't wear skirts, so that's another tip in favor, right? And the other thing is, especially for cross-dressers, if you don't get to wear women's clothes that often and you have an opportunity, you don't really want to gear jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, let's face it, you know, if you worked on an oil platform and you were wearing a boil, an orange boiler suit all the time and you got your day off, you might actually put on a dress. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's part of it too. I have a thought. <laughs> um, and it's, on, it's along the same lines of um, what you're saying, Mickey, about being, you know, having the, the consciousness of, you know, and feeling a vulnerability as a woman. I think oftentimes in the trans discourse, we neglect to recognize that the violence that trans women face is the violence that women have faced since the beginning of time. That's right. Um, and that, you know, the intersections along those lines compound it. So like, you know, I think of transness as an intersection on my identity as a woman. And then, you know, the more intersections you experience of race, of class, um, create an increasingly, uh, you know, violent, uh, you know, possible outcome. I mean, I don't know what the percentage is of like cisgender women versus trans women. It might be higher for trans women, who knows. Um, but, In other know. words, what you're saying, and I think it's important really, is the tremendous connections between cis women and trans women as women. And that is an important point to emphasize, the, the connections that, that women have across embodiment, um, rather than emphasizing the differences based upon the history of embodiment, which really doesn't actually get us very far in terms of any kind of politics that I'm interested in participating in uh, personally, because really it has to do with uh, being women, basically, and the kinds of systemic sexism that we encounter as women. Of, any sort. And it's, I mean, it's so interesting that it happens on both sides as well, you know, I mean, I think that um, trans women oftentimes neglect to embrace the principles of feminism and then, you know, okay. of course, there's like a vocal minority of cisgender feminists who don't believe that trans women are or should be allowed into the club. Yes, fortunately, they're a small group. We should get another question. Tiny. Small but vocal minority. We'll take uh, two more questions. So I've got one here and one there, and the rest of you <coughs> will talk informally. Great. Um, thank you, all three of you, for sharing all of the things you have tonight. Um, I was just wondering about if anyone had any thoughts on how these images sit in relationship to the rest of the exhibition. So there's a lot of different themes of kind of the outsider that are explored throughout the exhibition, whether it's race, class, riding a motorcycle, different physical disabilities, et cetera. So I was wondering if any of you had any thoughts on how um, these images, both as what you might call vernacular photography or that kind of thing, as opposed to photojournalism or something that we more comfortably fits into fine art, um, how these images kind of work in relationship to the rest of the exhibition. I think, I mean, I was thinking as I was wa looking, walking through the exhibition, 
um, just about the pain, you know, like the tremendous pain that you feel when looking at those Gordon Parks photographs and, you know, the woman who, um, after being beaten by her husband, throws the scalding, you know, the narrative of, of pain and of an oppressed minority. The thing that makes these images so different is that they're celebratory and that even if these people felt a tremendous amount of pain outside of the world of the images, um, which is undisclosed. I mean, we don't know how painful their lives were. That these images are so um, celebratory, you know. Whereas the other ones, the, the other works in the exhibition, I think, um, really capture the, the pain mm -hmm. of being an outsider. In, in most cases. Well, one of the wonderful things about the show, in my viewpoint, is the multiple ways in which the notion of outsider is brought into view in the exhibition, because um, one could argue, for example, that Danny Lyon is not much of an outsider, really. I mean, is a cisgendered male with a certain amount of privilege, et cetera. Yet, what he photographs and how he photographs them historically has been documenting very much outsider communities. We have the biker series here, but if you even look at his work with SNCC, for example, so he's, he's working with outsider communities, and he himself, by virtue of that, is an outsider. And then, of course, with Gordon Parks, I mean, of course, he's, he's doing photojournalism for you know, the, some of the major magazines in the United States at the time, and, and then goes on, of course, to produce Shaft, et cetera, like Hollywood movies. But of course, he's black, the first paid black photographer working for, um, for uh, time life uh, during, during this period of time, and therefore is necessarily an outsider, right? Just by virtue of the subject position. And also, one could argue, by being a photojournalist, and here we are, after all, in the Art Gallery of Ontario, the genre of photojournalism is an outsider discourse in relationship to fine art photography, as is, of course, uh, the snapshot and vernacular photography that we're seeing here. So I think with, if we were to go, through, and also this is true for the film that's on view as well in the exhibition, that there's multiple ways in which this question of, of outsiderness comes into play with the exhibition, but it's not the same for each body of work. And it makes it difficult to pin down, which I think makes it especially rich, because it does have that capacity to uh, expand and contract and, and reshape itself in relationship to, to the work and to the history of the making of that work. I, I also urge us to remember that the photos in the Casa Susanna part of the exhibit are photos, as you said, that are celebratory because these people are in a situation where the guilt and the shame that they, that plagues them, because it does, it plagues them all, uh, is, is put at bay. Um, there is a phenomena common to cross-dressers known as purging, where you wake up one day and you say, this is ridiculous, I'm not doing this, it's sick, it's weird, and you take all of your, your women's clothes, put them in 
black garbage bags, find a garbage can far away from where you live, and throw them all out. And three months later, you say, what the hell did I do that for? Right? But the guilt and shame that comes with, with cross-dressing, which is alleviated by Casa Susanna and its ilk, don't forget that. That's all I'm, all I'm asking. I, th I also think um, that the notion of outsider has no boundaries and that a lot of people feel like outsiders regardless of their cultural position or the reality of their body. Um, I think so many of us feel alienated from normative culture, even, even the traditional you know, man who has it all doesn't actually feel like they have it all and doesn't, it's true. you know, like, I mean, I, I think that oftentimes we neglect to recognize the ways in which um, we're all outliers in, yep. in one way. The stakes are different is the other thing. And I think the stakes mm -hmm. of the Casa Susana subjects because of, um, you know, the, the comfort of their lives, their ability to indulge in um, something that really is probably along class lines, ultimately. Yeah. Well, um, if, you, if you ask most cisgendered people, have you ever felt that you failed at your gender? A majority will say yes. That's something. We all fail. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we all, nobody it's passes. It's impossible. Yeah. It's a test you can't pass. Nobody Our passes. final question. It's all on me. Um, I, I, my question actually builds also on the, on the status of the Casa Zilana images in the exhibition and comments you all made earlier on about the imbrication of photography and gender, because although it's great to see them projected here, for me one of the powers of those images is the vernacular photography feel of, the, of those tiny snapshots, that, and particularly they have a historic value um, that has, for me, a lot of affect attached to it because of uh, the disappearance of uh, different modes of analog photography. And they also look and feel very different in the exhibition because they're not on the walls, they're in a case. Um, they're tiny, you have to hunch over them. The colors are beautiful and I think contribute to the, the celebratory performance of femininity in them. Um, as someone who wears a lot of vintage clothes or likes the 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 styles of femininity of that period, I feel like that's part of what I'm seeing. So I was interested, Zachary, in your discussion of, of, of um, coming upon that later, using the Polaroid snapshot as a way to perform gender, and we could think about the selfie now. So I just wonder if you could comment on both the specificity of the format of the images, as well as an ongoing history of use of the photograph to perform femininity. Well, the photographs often were very personal. Right? They were small, they were meant to be passed around uh, at parties or uh, with friends or mailed to friends in an envelope and hopefully it didn't get lost. Uh, some of them were Polaroids. Polaroids was the cross-dresser's best friend because you didn't have to, I mean, imagine taking pictures at a party and being afraid to take it to the developer. You know, being afraid to uh, uh, take it to the Photoshop. Because in those days, of course, that's what you did. You didn't print it out at home. You took it to, uh, a pr to be processed. 
And of course, you were convinced that whoever is doing it is going to look at them pictures and say, oh my God, and show them to other people, which could happen sometimes. So they were very, very personal. And I, I, I appreciate what you're saying, saying they're small and, and you know, we're not meant to be exhibited like that. Uh, and I think that's a, that's a very good point. And it's the personality of them uh, that, that made them cherished and important. And the, what, the other thing that's really lovely about them is that you can see in the material sense the kind of traces of that history as people have written on them, for example, or they're kind of creased, or sometimes you have the date stamp of when, when they were sent to the photo mat or whatever, whoever developed them. I don't think Andrea did that, but you can see some of the markings, if you will, of that are, represent the kind of material traces of these kind of effective circuits where they're passed from hand to hand. And I, I think that um, the curators did a lovely job of how they displayed the photographs of how Sophie and other colleagues here at AGO displayed them because um, they're in these, but they're grouped together almost like a photo album in a way, right? So you really have this sense of the, the mass of them um, and they didn't put them, you know, they, they weren't matted, they weren't framed, they're really in a vitrine, so obviously they need to be protected from the public in a you know, large space like this, but I think to the extent that's possible, you sort of get a sense of the kind of everydayness of the multiplicity of the images and how they're written upon and how they're kind of creased in various places and they kind of bear those traces of doing that important kind of emotional work as they circulate from one person to another within the, within the network. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, it's striking when you're walking through the exhibition, the size of the other images in the wall, the Arbus images, the golden images, um, less so with Winograd, because those are, I guess, eight by tons. Um, are we being visited by a divine? <laughs> Ghost of, yeah, of, of the, the Casa Susana cast is with us in the room. Um, I think, yeah, I mean, the history of consumer photography explodes in the 1950s. It really starts, you know, around the turn of the century with the Kodak One, and then in the 20s with the Brownie, and then ultimately it's with. Um, you know, America's rise as a global power, that photography becomes, you know, an everyday sort of um, presence in, in, in the home. Um, and that's a very gendered history also, because if you think about Kodak, you know, you push the button, we do the rest. Mm -hmm. You can be as dumb as a woman, and you can still operate a camera because we'll take care of the film. It's okay. Just send it to Rochester. I mean, one of the most brilliant gendered marketing ploys in the history of uh, consumer culture. So, I mean, because who is it who takes the photographs, right? It's the women within most families with a snapshot camera. I mean, if you're dealing with these gigantic lenses, that's a whole other question, of course. But, and now with selfies, you know, and the cell phones, it's a whole other story. But with the analog photography, that snapshot practice is very much gendered, and it's very much related to kinship networks, which in most circumstances are, you know, heterosexual and normative, but in this circumstance is very queer in the kind of 
trans family album that I think you can really see the, the Casa Susana photographs as functioning as, as a kind of mm -hmm. queer kinship. They network. are, in that sense, family photographs. Taking, taking pictures of, of your sisters and your aunts and your cousins uh, who, who are there with you. Yes, very much so. Yeah, I mean, it's, they're so distinct, I think, in the exhibition and the way that, you know, the other, the other photographers are working in this history of the decisive moment and um, the thing that marks these photographs is the subjects, not the photograph itself. Zachary, Elspeth, Nikki, thank you so much for your talk to me. <laughs>